Good evening. Welcome to University Reformed Church for our evening service of worship. My name is Dave Hinckley. I am an elder here. If you don't know me, I'm an elder here at URC. I'm also on staff as the Children and Youth Ministry Director. Um, I, if you don't know me, I became a Christian here uh, through the ministry of URC uh, about 30 years ago. My wife and I raised all of our four kids here. I love this church very much, and I am honored to be here to share the Lord's Word with you tonight. We are continuing our series through the book of James. Our text is James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. You'll find it on page 1011, 1011 of the Pew Bibles, or if you're not using those, it's sandwiched between the book of Hebrews and the book of 1 Peter. This James that is writing is James, the half-brother of Jesus, who is a leader, who was a leader in the Jerusalem church in the first century. This letter reads a little differently than most of the other letters in the New Testament. Now, where Paul will take pains to start his letters by explaining the glorious truths of the gospel and our union with Christ, and then move to important moral imperatives at the end of his letter, James's approach is to give clear moral imperatives appealing to the realities of the gospel to justify and explain them. In James, the gospel is the bones, and how people must live is the flesh that is on the bones. In chapter 1, James has already exhorted us that we must count our suffering as joy because of the work that God is doing in us, that we must remain steadfast under trial, that we must be doers of the Word of God and not merely hearers of the Word of God, and that the practice of pure religion, he has closed chapter 1 by saying, the practice of pure religion is to visit the lowly in their affliction and to fight to remain unstained by the world. This is a rich, rich book full of God's wisdom about how we believers in Christ must live. Which brings us to our text for the evening, the beginning of chapter 2. Let's pray before we open God's Word together. Lord, we thank you that you have not left us to wonder about how we are to live as redeemed people. You knew what we needed to know and inspired these holy men to write it down almost 2,000 years ago. They wrote down not only what we needed to know to be saved, but we needed to, what we needed to know to live complete lives, equipped for every good work. We pray that you would open our hearts to hear your exhortations, knowing that they are from a loving Father, from whom we were once alienated, but to whom we have been restored. By the intercession of Christ the Son, who deserves our praise forever, and it is in his name 
that we pray this evening. Amen. Okay, James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored this poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not also the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you commit adultery but do not murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The word of the Lord is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Amen. As I grew up, I wonder if this is true of you, I learned from television and at school that it was wrong to be prejudiced. Seems like never judge a book by its cover was the theme of many, many movies. I think of Harry and the Hendersons. I think of Disney's Hunchback of Notre Dame. I think of the, the scene in Empire Strikes Back where Yoda first meets, or Luke first meets Yoda. Um, I, I even remember watching VeggieTales with my kids. Uh, Junior Asparagus doesn't need to be scared of Frankenstein's celery because he's actually very nice. Now, of course, this is a simple and wise principle. This is a true, a truism. Don't allow yourself to be prejudiced. I wonder, though, if that is all we, all we are to get out of uh, what James has for us here. Let me rephrase that. That's not all that James is saying. It is not a simple message of don't judge a book by its cover. 
I want us to do a little bit of work together to understand exactly what James is saying in this passage. The section clearly connects to the last section, and particularly to the end of chapter 1. James' theme at the end of chapter 1 is to remind us that it is the hearing of, that just hearing the word of the Lord is not enough. We must take care that what we hear, we put into practice in our lives. He illustrates this with a principle about how to define true religion, that is, to visit the widows and the orphans in their need and keep ourselves unstained from the world. With all, with all of this, James is rehearsing kind of the, the message of his book, which is that uh, the, there is a connection between the first and second greatest commandments. Recall when Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment in the law? He answers, it is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And, he says, the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. The more you meditate on the one, love the Lord your God, the more you realize it has ever, that you can't do that without doing this loving your neighbor. You love the Lord your God through and by loving your neighbor. The second is like the first. They are connected. We cannot in actual practice separate them. How is it that you might show your love for God if it is not actually to show your love for others? What could it possibly mean to treasure the Lord in your heart while ignoring a needy brother? James says, and will say, that means literally nothing. You will show your love for God by your love for his people. I say it to, to the kids in my profession of faith class in this way, your actions show what you believe. Your actions show what you believe. The example I sometimes give is, were I a registered Democrat, but only ever in every election voted Republican, whatever I might call myself, I am actually a Republican, right? Because my actions show my belief far more than my registration. Tonight's passage is a development of this larger theme of James. It's easy to read the thesis of the passage as what's stated plainly in verse 1 and in the section heading, do not show partiality, I think the actual thesis is found in verse 12. So, let me trace through the argument just, just in, in brief, and then we'll do that more thoroughly. Uh, verse 1, a stated principle, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And then following that, an extended example of how this principle is violated. That's verses 2 through 7. A second and related principle is offered to us in verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. 
And then likewise, this principle is proven by example uh, in the, the following verse. And the concluding principle, the following verses, in the concluding principle, that is the thesis of the previous two that have been articulated, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. Verse 13 then elaborates on that principle. What James wants us to know is that we, sinners saved by grace, who have been shown such great mercy in Christ, must remember our dependence upon His grace and treat one another with that same grace. Those three commands given are going to be our three points that we work through. The Christian must show no partiality, the Christian must fulfill the royal law, and the Christian must live like one who has received mercy. First, let's examine what James means by partiality. The word that is translated here, partiality, is an interesting one because it takes a Hebrew idiom to lift the face and just translates it directly into the Greek. Uh, so if you've ever tried to translate the meaning of concepts from one language into another that doesn't have the second language, the, the language you're translating into doesn't have the same concept, you, you'll recognize the, uh, the challenge that this can be. Um, we often bring my mother, who is deaf, to uh, the Christmas Eve services here at URC, and I do my best to interpret the uh, songs and the service and the sermon for her into, into ASL. Um, I always struggle when we get to low how a rose air blooming which is a beautiful hymn filled with imagery that makes very little sense directly <laughs> translated into ASL. I say, uh, the rose is Jesus, and we love him, and he fulfilled prophecy, and we're lost without him, and now I'm going to put my hands down <laughs> until everybody stops singing. But then she'll say, what are they singing? They're singing Isaiah twas foretold it, and I only know the sign for it. So the phrase here is translated, that is translated partiality is, lift your face. My brothers, since you know, since you trust in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, do not lift the face. This idiom means to show favor uh, or to judge in favor of someone. When we offer the high priestly blessing at the end of a, of a service, the benediction, uh, we ask that the Lord may lift his countenance, his face, upon us. That is, that he would have favor upon us and take care of us. David, toward the end of 1 Samuel 25, is about to destroy Nabal and his men when Nabal's wise wife, Abigail, comes and shows honor to the king with a gift and asks for mercy and even asks that she might die in her husband's place. David is moved by this righteous woman, and he relents from his wrath. And the text tells us this by telling us that he lifted his face upon her. 
He had mercy on her. He showed favor upon her. We see this idiom used in Leviticus 19, verse 15, where we are told in a court case, we are not to lift our face either to the poor man nor to the rich. Instead, we are to be impartial. This is the example that James picks up in chapter 2, verses 2 through 7. Rather than a courtroom, James presents a congregation, a church gathering in which the well-dressed and well-accessorized man is given a place of honor above the shabbily dressed man. By his attire, the one man shows himself to be rich, while the other reveals himself to be poor. James' command is that we, who were purchased by the blood of the King of Glory, must never judge a situation in that way. The idea that we should not favor the rich person is a truth that we've probably heard so often that we might be somewhat inoculated against it. Let's admit that it's pretty easy to regard those who are successful in worldly things as somehow more worthy of our honor, even sometimes more worthy of our trust. It is very easy to make assumptions about someone based on their clothes, which quickly turns into some assumptions based about their finances and about their character. It shouldn't be that way, but it is. James is reminding us that God does not see things in this way, and that when we do so, we sin against God. However, an opposite partiality could also occur. This is the kind that says, if someone has material success, they must not be trusted. Reading verses, verses 5 through 7 out of context might lead one to think that this is what James is saying. This is not what James is saying. This is the opposite of what James is saying. James is saying that these kind of worldly categories must not be the basis for the Christian's relationship with people, relationships with people. Believer, James is saying that you are fundamentally different from the world. So the way that you interact with it must be fundamentally different. Don't keep embracing the old and human ways of assessing the worth and value of others. Don't make distinctions, James says, and become judges with evil thoughts. Instead, humbly recall who you are in Christ before you even think about others. This is true especially within the church. This passage is essentially a paraphrase of Leviticus 19, but James intentionally changes the setting. If there will be no distinctions in heaven based on worldly circumstances, there sure better not be those distinctions made here in the church. It is an offense to the maker of that poor man to show him less honor in the church for having less. God did not choose on the basis of material success, and he does not grant his favor, he does not lift his face on that basis either. 
So, what other arbitrary, that is, non-spiritual, non-moral categories might sneak into a Christian's mind and might sneak into a Christian's judgment? Financial status, for sure, but also social status. In our context, in this town, uh, whether or not you have a college education, where you live, rural, urban, suburban, what part of the country you are originally from, and what accent you may use, have. Your age, your marital status, or whether or not you've had kids yet, the color of your skin or your ethnic heritage, Spartan or Wolverine. These are the kinds of things about which it is an offense to God to show partiality over in the church. Second, we want to examine the opposing principle that James gives. Um, sometimes James has been compared to the book of Proverbs, and we see a Proverbs-like reasoning uh, being argued here by James. He presents one truth, and he also presents the contrary truth. How we are to understand the phrase, do not show partiality, is filled out for us by its opposite, which is the royal law. That is, that the Christian must fulfill the royal law. The opposite of partiality is to love your neighbor as yourself. This is how we know that James is not only referring to how we treat the poor. He is at the very least referring He's at the very least referring to how we treat the poor, but more than that, he's referring to how the Christian views other people, and especially other people in the church. Those who show partiality, those who judge based on worldly categories, James tells us, are convicted by the law as transgressors. I want you to follow his point. James is saying... Have you ever sinned? Then you are guilty of transgressing the law. You are a transgressor even if you have only sinned in a lesser way. You are still a transgressor. You are still guilty before a holy God. God did not give his commands individually. That is, if you are a sinner in one way, you are simply a sinner. There is no such thing as grades of sinner, James is saying. The murderer and adulterer stand guilty before God. The one who shows partiality stands guilty before God. While certainly some sins are worse than others, no one stands before God as anything other than a sinner. In the profession of faith class that I've been teaching uh, this, uh, the last several weeks, I often explain it this way. Sinning against God is like multiplying times infinity. Maybe a lie is worth negative one, and murder is worth negative a thousand, but if you multiply those numbers by infinity, you still get the same number. 
Any sin is an infinite offense against an infinitely holy and infinitely worthy Creator. And the wages of sin is death. So what is it that you owe for your sin of infinite value? You owe an infinite debt. You deserve infinite wrath and infinite death. I deserve infinite wrath and infinite death. You can't even pay the infinite debt because you are not of infinite value. The blood of bulls and goats can't really pay the debt because it wasn't a bull that offended the holy God. Lost people that we are, what can possibly save us from ourselves and from our sins? About now, the kids in the class are straining their hands. Oh, oh, I know, I know, I get it. There's only one man who is of infinite value, Mr. Hinckley, and he died as our substitute and absorbed the wrath of God on our behalf so that if we place our trust, our sure hope in him, we can receive the reward that he earned since he was innocent and since he was of infinite worth. He is of infinite worth. His atoning death is enough to pay for your sins in total, yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and not only yours, but mine and all of his elect brethren. The only way to pay infinity is with infinity. And our God is merciful and awesomely creative and to be forever praised. James is saying this. You ower of an infinite debt. Are you really going to look on another person with anything other than mercy? Really? This is what is meant by the law of liberty. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. The truth of your humble estate as a redeemed person before a holy God should permeate your interactions so thoroughly that you can't see another human being without being reminded of the, glo- of the mercy that God has had upon you. You have been saved by grace, and that changes everything about how you treat other people. The Christian knows that they are guilty before a holy and good God. And what is more, they know that the same God, although he was not required to, but out of his sheer love for us, redeemed us from our sin. Living like one judged under the law of liberty means humility. It means a desire for good of anyone, for the good of anyone with whom you interact. And it means especially the desire for the good of those within your church body. It means an eagerness to share the gospel because you want others to share in the mercy that you have received and not deserved. And it means that you do not make your assessments 
of the trustworthiness, the value, the importance of someone's opinion based on fleshly or worldly criteria. James puts a powerful punctuation on this section, saying essentially, if you are unwilling to show this mercy in your interactions with people, you should not expect mercy from God. Another way of saying that same thing is, if you have been truly shown this mercy, you will understand it and embrace it to such a degree that you will be convicted that you must show mercy to others. That is, this is how the redeemed person treats others, so go forward and do it. So, what does it mean to show partiality? To show partiality is to selectively show mercy. You might object, isn't that exactly what God does? Sovereignly elect those upon whom he shows mercy? Now you've grasped the point. The perfect and holy creator of all things is allowed to sovereignly choose based on the wisdom of his own counsel. It is, however, incredibly presumptuous and disrespectful of you and or I to judge based on anything other than what his word has clearly said. To show partiality is to put yourself in the place of God and sovereignly choose who is to be listened to, who is to be respected, who is to be trusted. That is unacceptable. Allow me to add a postscript. I, I think that this command to us also applies to the church, uh, to us in the church, about matters, uh, it applies to matters about which Christians who are sincere, who are educated, who have thought through and prayed through a certain debatable topic, whatever it may be, how they treat with one another. Sincere Christians can disagree on the base, basis of conscience, and I think that if you have a brother or sister who is sincerely convinced before the Lord that they should live in a certain way, and you are sincerely convinced otherwise, it would be a sin to show partiality. Please hear me. I'm not talking about matters of core doctrine, matters about which the gospel stands or falls. I'm not talking about who should be in leadership in the church. That is clearly prescribed in Paul's letters. I'm talking about looking across the aisle and saying, he doesn't have the same opinion as me on such and such cultural matter, and so I don't trust him. Allow me to suggest that this, too, is a refusal to have mercy, to have the mercy that being saved by grace requires of you. We really need to reclaim the art, the loving art of seeking to persuade our brothers and sisters for their own good. I am not saying we shouldn't try to educate the conscience of another believer. I'm not even saying that this other believer who believes something differently about this debatable matter isn't wrong. But to judge, to write off, 
to say anathema, to arrogantly criticize, to disregard, and effectively to disfellowship, in a word, to show partiality against them, is quite simply an offense to the God who has had mercy upon us. I honestly don't have anyone in specific in mind as I present that to you, but I will say, if you are a little bit irritated with me right now for saying all that, then maybe I'm talking to you. Or, more precisely, maybe the Word of God is talking to you. Verse 13 says, Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is your assignment, Christian. To regard one another with the mercy that is proper for a redeemed sinner. James has not said here that we should never oppose someone, nor ever exhort someone, or even correct someone. James has said that every interaction that we have must be governed by a mercy that springs from our humility as redeemed sinners. Let's pray. <laughs> Lord, these are matters that require maturity, wisdom, and much humility. Help us, we ask, to demonstrate our love to you by treating one another with mercy. Not because of what they deserve from us, but because of what you deserve from us. It is our desire to show you honor in everything that we do. And as we love our neighbors, that you would receive it as praise and worship from us. Help us, we ask, to grow in putting others before ourselves. Help us, we ask, to grow in our mercy and our brokenness for the lost. Help us, we ask, to love our brothers and sisters in this church as is fitting of sinners redeemed by such a wonderful Savior. And it is in His name that we pray. Amen.